Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Today's episode is part of a multi-part series titled Perspectives on Death that examines my experiences with death, both as a religious person and later in my secular life. I'll be explaining the ways in which death has impacted me, and perhaps touch on some responses and reactions that may resonate or offer alternatives to the experiences others may have had. This series mirrors articles from the At Home in My Head blog. A link to the blog series is also included in the description. And now, for episode two of Perspectives on Death, Susan. I sat on an old rattan love seat, surrounded by island colors, stacks of books, seashells, and handmade arts and crafts. Morning sunlight yawned and stretched through the wicker blinds as a breeze from the ocean carried a slight salt scent into the tiny room. Susan, my cousin on my mother's side, was in the adjoining kitchen slicing a massive papaya on the counter. The yellow-green husk opened to expose fleshy peach and orange fruit, bursting with slimy gray-brown seeds. Susan scraped out the center, gripping the spoon considerably well, with hands weakened and distorted from neuropathy. David and I had spent the night. We all went to dinner at a local seafood place she recommended. We ate, drank, and shared stories and life philosophies late into the night. Susan had never met my then-fiancé, David. I'd introduced him to my parents and siblings, but as far as extended family, I'd simply said, you have to meet Susan. None of us realized that would be our only opportunity. The papaya was soft and sweet as it gushed slippery perfume juices down my throat and chin. Are you happy? She looked in the direction of David. And when I told her I was completely happy, she was happy for me. The first time I remember meeting Susan, I was probably an adolescent. She was much older and was unlike any of my other relatives. She was single when I met her, the result of a divorce in her past. I remember how openly she described the drugs, the abuse, the fear that made her finally decide to pack up her twin boys and run away to safety in the middle of the night. When I was growing up, situations like divorce, domestic violence, and single mothers were mostly abstractions discussed as social issues, but never mentioned on a private or personal level. Shameful things. Our neighbor was a single mother. She worked hard and struggled to make ends meet for her three children, who seemed to raise themselves. But Susan wasn't like this. She never seemed to be struggling. In fact, she was happy with her life, proud to talk about it. Opportunities, mistakes, nonconformity, no apologies. She owned every bit of herself, fiercely. To many of my other relatives, her lifestyle was considered shameful, and her lack of shame and her defiance of the shackles of their social propriety only proved to them that she was beyond redemption and that their disdain was justified. Susan got on well with my father. Their life philosophies were night and day, but I suspect my father on some level envied her ability to live how she pleased. She was one of those people who could have conversations with him that didn't evolve into yelling and insults. When he expressed bigoted views, she'd give him an, Oh, Uncle Webb, with an, I love you anyway, but you have so much to learn, 
piggybacked in her tone. My mother loves Sue as well, and was my cousin's favorite aunt. Somehow, Susan was able to bypass mom's rules against swearing and get away with saying fuck in our house, as if it were just like any other word. Still, mom understood that Susan's lifestyle choices would only be talked about in whispers and not in front of polite company. I remember hearing family members talk about the shack she lived in with her boys in the mountains of Jamaica. She knew Bob Marley, and her friends there all called her Susie with a Jamaican accent. She had a donkey to haul things up and down the mountain, but no running water, no electricity, and no job. I remember wondering how she survived without money. Words like bum and dirty were tossed around. But the worst of her sins, the ones never discussed out loud, were the open drug use and her many Jamaican romantic lovers. Of all the talk about her going on behind her back, the one thing that was never considered was, is she happy? Because she seemed really happy to me. Meanwhile, the people who judged her seemed uptight, angry, vicious, and nothing like happy. I remember her finally telling me firsthand about her life on the island. She said she had a little hut on a mountainside near a waterfall. Her and the boys used the water for drinking and bathing. When I get hungry, I pick up a paya or throw a line in the water and catch a fish. The food grows wild. If I need money, I go down to the beach and find a gig selling t-shirts to tourists. Her life was simple and satisfying. Everyone else I knew seemed miserable by comparison and complicated in their lives, full of secrets and discontent. This was the life the woman who posed such a threat, such a dark, secret shame to our whole family. As a child, I couldn't understand why her life was considered so wrong. As an adult, I know it wasn't. Every time she'd visit, we'd stay up late talking. I was riveted to her stories and unorthodox ideas. She said things other people were scared to say. She did things other people were scared to do. And despite doing all the wrong and shameful things, her life was exciting and fun and joyful. She was a woman living wild on an island. She did as she pleased, and she didn't care whether anyone else approved. She was the most genuine, fearless, and empowered person I'd ever met, possibly that I will ever meet. The other thing I remember about her visits was that she cared about what I thought or said. She didn't always agree with me, which wasn't surprising since I was pretty much still a kid. But she took me seriously. She asked me questions. She listened to my answers. She asked me to consider other points of view. Unlike other adults, she never said, you'll see it differently when you get older. She didn't treat me like my ideas were juvenile and therefore unimportant. She talked with me, not to me. Some years, there were only holiday cards exchanged, and some years... I'd pick up a phone and give her a call. We'd connect like there was no time between us. Long conversations, her interesting life, my wide-eyed admiration, and her open-minded listening to all my observations on life. And always that same underlying theme. Are you happy? I don't remember how I found out about her breast cancer. It was probably a call from my mother. But I remember calling Susan immediately. Her regular mammograms were always clear. She found the lump during a self-examination and had gone in to get it checked. By the time they diagnosed her, it was terminal. The best they could offer were drugs to keep her pain-free. 
She laughed. At least I'm not going to die from neuropathy. I wasn't looking forward to that. Her attitude was tremendous. I guess this is how my story ends, she told me. I'm going to die at 50 from breast cancer. In the time she had left, I called her every week. The calls were like our other conversations, only more frequent since I realized my time with her was running out. Her mother came to stay with her. Her father, with whom she'd had a strong bond, had passed away some years before. She told me about a dream in which her father came to sit with her in a park. They talked about death, and he told her things would be fine. It was more than a dream to her. On some level, she believed there was something of her father actually in it. I don't believe in such things, but it didn't matter. The main thing for me was that it was significant for her, and she was sharing something deeply meaningful. In another call, toward the end, she said she'd felt horrible the day prior. That night, going to sleep, she'd thought to herself, This is it. I won't be waking up again. The following morning, when she did wake up, she thought, Well, what do you know? I guess I'm still here. She left the country twice after her diagnosis. The first trip was to visit the love of her life, Jamaica, one last time. The second trip was also a visit to Jamaica, one last time, because she realized she was nearing the end, and she still had one more trip left in her. The second trip was taxing, though. It took a toll. It wore her down. But she had to make that final push to see it one more time while she still could. Jamaica had been the one place on earth that was truly home for Susan. Susan had fled violence in the middle of the night. She'd raised twin boys in the wild mountains. She'd bravely confronted neuropathy and brazenly challenged social conventions. She learned to live happily in simplicity and poverty. And now, the same woman who smiled at death as she woke up each morning said to me that the hardest thing she'd ever done in her life was to look back at those mountains that had been her home before stepping onto an airplane knowing she'd never see them again. As the weekly calls went on, I began to think about the impact Susan had had on my life. I wanted to tell her but thought it must be obvious. When I finally did tell her, I said she probably knew she was my favorite cousin, that I'd always appreciated our engagements, and that she'd had a significant and positive impact on me from as far back as I could remember. My confession was met with silence. After a while, when she finally did respond, she said she had no idea. She was amazed and appreciative that I'd told her. Not expressing it to her before she died would have haunted me. One afternoon, I received a call from Susan's mother to say she'd passed away. She thanked me for staying in touch and said that Susan had looked forward to my weekly calls. I didn't fly back to attend the memorial, but I was told that the number of people who attended was staggering. People from all walks of life and many areas of the globe traveled to be there. Her mother didn't recognize half the people who showed up. I lost my cousin Susan. Her Jamaican friends lost Susie. My parents lost Sue. Her death was the loss of a mother, a daughter, a sister, a friend, and for some, a lover. All of us, though, were damn lucky to have her in our lives. My heart broke for her when she talked about losing her mountains. But I never shed a tear from my loss, 
because in every way imaginable, knowing Susan was a gain. In all the years since her death, I've never felt grief. After coming back to Austin from visiting her in St. Augustine, I couldn't forget that delicious papaya. I'd tried to buy papayas before, but I could never pick a good one. Always too ripe, not ripe enough. But after that visit, I started trying again, and I kept trying until I could trust myself to select a perfectly ripe papaya. After Susan's death, I went back to Florida to visit my parents. I offered to make them dinner and stopped on the way to their house to pick up groceries. After dinner, I cut up a papaya for dessert. My mother said she'd never tried one. I spoke to her on the phone a few months later, and she told me she was buying them regularly for herself because she loved them. It was a legacy. After breakfast with Susan, I began eating papayas. I also began sharing papayas with others who then began eating and sharing papayas. We aren't just eating fruit. We're eating the memory of Susie, picking a ripe papaya off a tree somewhere in the mountains of Jamaica. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.